this is Robert Wagner, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. And these guys are great. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and our engineer, Frank Verderosa. We're doing something a little different this week. Instead of our usual solo guest, we've assembled a crack panel of experts to discuss one of our favorite subjects on this show— the Marx Brothers. Josh Frank is a writer, producer, director, and composer who's written screenplays and plays, including an authorized adaptation of Werner Herzog's Strozek. Close? Uh, close enough. <laughs> Strozelnet. Uh, he Strozelbiven. He's the author of the books Fool the World, the oral history of a band called the Pixies, and in heaven everything is fine, the unsolved life of Peter Ivers and the lost history of new wave theater. His newest passion project is giraffes on horseback salad, Salvador Dali, the Marx Brothers, and the greatest movie never made, the graphic novelization of the legendary proposed screen collaboration between the Marxes and Salvador Dali. Robert S. Bader makes his second appearance on the podcast. He's a historian, writer, and producer of the documentaries Dick Cavett's Vietnam, The Legendary Bing Crosby, The Dawn of Sound, How Movies Learn to Talk, and You Bet Your Life, The Lost Episodes. He's also the editor of Groucho Marx and other short stories and tall tales, and an exclusively research book. Exhaustively. Ah. Oh, it was exclusive, too. Fuck me. And an exhaustively research book that continues to impress Frank and me. Four of the three musketeers, the Marx Brothers on stage. And finally, on the phone with us from California, Bill Marx is the last surviving person to have worked with Groucho, Harpo, and Chico. He's a Juilliard-trained musician and composer who's written and composed numerous works for concerts, films, and television, theater, and ballet, and produced and arranged and performed on two memorable albums 
with his dad. His memoir is called Son of Harpo Speaks, and it's a terrific read. Welcome, boys. Well, we can all go home now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is there any time left for the show? No. <laughs> well, whatever you said about me, I'm so tired. I got to go lie down. <laughs> How are you, Bill? Hey. Thanks fine. for doing this. Uh, my uh, extreme pleasure so far. Yeah. Do you know these yeah, two th- these two uh, scoff laws that are sitting here with us, Josh yes, and Robert? I know. Yep, I know them, and I, uh, I and that's as far as I'm going to take with this. Uh, I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> I think that's a vote of confidence. Yes, yes. Now, Gilbert and I were looking at at, uh, at giraffes on horseback salad, and by the way, Josh, a nice guest who brought gifts. You know, very rare. It uh, yeah, he brought us a poster of the non-existent movie. What a mensch! And a T-shirt of the non-existent. Now, this, you know, growing up, I remember we'd all hear these horror stories of about someone who dropped acid and they had such a bad trip, they either jumped off a bridge or wound up spending the rest of their life in an insane asylum. That's what this book looks like to me. Well, that's the whole idea. Now you don't have to do those other things, (laughs) you see? Like, this is a gift, you know? <laughs> well, he was looking at it before, and he was saying it was the kind, it's like the kind of movie that in the 60s people would use as an excuse to get high. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you'd go see Fantasia and Yellow Submarine. You First you get stoned and then see those. And this would be definitely, if it existed nowadays... People would get stoned, and there'd be mobs of people wanting to watch Wait this. until you lick page 34. <laughs> <laughs> he has. Tell us the genesis, Josh. I mean, this 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 thing, everybody, every Marx Brothers fan knows about this this long-lost project. I don't want to say long-lost movie, because there was no movie, and there was really no screenplay either. Right. Well, I actually didn't. I've been a fan of the Marx Brothers since I was seven, eight years old, and... and um, I've been studying, you know, lost pop culture histories for 20 years now. And I actually didn't know about this um, until really the last seven or eight years. Um, I heard mention of it at one point, just in passing, that Dali had, you know, attempted to write something. But it really wasn't until about six years ago when I decided that I really wanted my next book to be... um, taking a, a lost or unmade movie by someone or some group of people that I admired and, mm-hmm. and trying to uh, uncover what was left to work with and try and finish their work. I really, I felt that that would be something really interesting and cool to do. So after I finished my third book, I started scouring the uh, the internet for, for, you know, all of those lists of, you know, the hundred, you know, great, character roles that no one ever got to see sure. or, or the 50 best unmade movies. And there was a ton of these lists of unmade movies. And on all of them, along with uh, Werner Herzog, that's how you pronounce it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it it's not Herzlberry. Mr. Voivelman. Along with Herzog's, um, he wanted to make this uh, 
uh, like a, a Spanish, uh, a Mexican Civil War mm-hmm. uh, epic, and then um, Kubrick's you know, Napoleon. Is Kubrick's a lo- Napoleon lo- was on project, all the list. Yeah. Of course, Dune. Sure. Um, uh, and on pretty much all the lists was uh, Salvador Dali's Giraffes on Horseback Salad. And it was really the first time that I saw that this was legit. Like this was not just sort of this silly myth or this, like people were talking about this and there was even a couple sentences about things that Dolly had wanted to have happen in it. And and they were nuts. Like, you know, like, like Harpo uh, cracking uh, a, a, a nut on a midget and then handing it to Groucho. <laughs> and for you, Gil. Yeah. And then <laughs> and Groucho eats the nut and spits it back in the in the uh-huh. in 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 the the, the anyway uh, <laughs> monkeys and just uh, really crazy stuff. Uh, so, but I was intrigued, you know, because I I'm never one just to believe that what I'm seeing in front of me is all that there is. Like, if if there's something about something, there's probably more about that something somewhere if you look hard enough. And so I sort of. And and then at the same time in my head there was that sort of delusions of grandeur thing coming on, which is like I could make the next Marx right, Brothers movie, course. you know, Seductive. like uh-huh. you know, like I could be that guy. And, and, and you're going to insert little person where he said midgets and no one boycotted. Oh the god, oh, yeah. you're you listening to the wrong show, buddy. <laughs> just, just checking. <laughs> Dolly specifically used the word midget. There you go. Let me- I'm quoting Dolly, but. So the point was, is that that's sort of where the the spark of maybe I could do something with this started. And then the more I dug and the more I reached out to the Dali Foundation, who sent me to, you know, this and museum when, in Paris. When you reached out to them, did you say, hello, Dali? Yeah. <laughs> yes, He's I been hanging on to that you. since you were booked. <laughs> that's why you were booked. Surprisingly. <laughs> the only Dali. reason uh, we booked you. <laughs> It's because I've been sitting on that joke for years. Oh, now you could fucking it's, leave. It's all downhill from here, then. Surprisingly, the Dolly Foundation. Story? Bill, go ahead. Bill's still here. Happy story. Hang on, Josh. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. Referencing, referencing the midget. I just want you to know. Dad got off. He got a very, very good attorney and got off. He didn't have to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, give, a, a give us story. Give, give, before before Josh tells us about his journey of of, uh, of making this thing happen. Give us a little historical context. When when did you become aware of this project, this mystery script? About twenty minutes ago, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, when Frank called. Uh, I would, I would say maybe, uh, I met Josh uh, last year mm-hmm. and he informed me of this absurdity and I, you know, I wished him well and low would I know, but it is one of the most remarkable, unusual, hardcover comic books you'll ever read in your life. Yeah, he pulled it, it, it off. Yeah, he really did because in in the fashion that it is presented, it's unique. And let's face it, we're talking about Dolly and the Marx Brothers. Both of uh, entities were absolutely unique, and it was a great choice. It's a it's a marvelous uh, what I would call icebreaker at a dinner party. 
to give us even more historical uh, context, tell us a, a little, and I'm going to come back to Josh on this journey, but tell us a little bit about your dad's relationship with Dolly. Well, I'd, I'd rather listen to Josh, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, I have a question I, for Bill that I think I'm is, riveted. Okay. Bill, tell them about your mom and her interaction with Dolly, because I love this. Harpo's wife was the most realistic person about this, because I think she thought the whole thing was a load of nonsense. She told me that it was a load of nonsense. Yeah, and then we'd like to hear what happened to the harp. Yes, Bill, <laughs> the harp that Dolly said. No. Well, for those of you who are not familiar with lost uh, screenplays or books or whatever, uh, Robert had the distinct, I'm going to say, pleasure of co-writing my mother's biography. And so he spent a considerable amount of time with Susan, who was not exactly the most sentimental person in the entire world. Uh, probably more interesting than all the Marx Brothers put together. She carved out a life of her own in spite of the fact that uh, uh, she, she was shuttled as a child from place to place to place to place and never had any friends of her own uh, while she was young until she met uh, Paulette Goddard when she was, I think, 16 or something at Ned Wayburn's dance class. And then they both went on to uh, the Ziegfeld Follies and then Mom went into uh, Columbia and uh, Paramount Pictures and she hated show business. From the time her mother put her in <laughs> show business, she couldn't she w couldn't wait to get out. But she there was no place for her to turn except toward her mother, who was basically a stage mom who vicariously wanted to experience uh, success through her daughter. And when she finally, uh, uh, Susan Fleming finally met Harpo and they got married, she became Mrs. Harpo Marks, a totally different entity. And she lived on and on and on for this man. And if they were alive today, they would still be married. He died on their 28th uh, wedding anniversary that day on September 28th. And so uh, 28 and and, uh, and and it's multiple, multiplied uh, into infinity will always be a very special number for uh, the Marx family. She, she could give an opinion on absolutely everything that ever happened on the planet. And she had strong opinions about Dolly. Is that, is that what you're, you're referencing, Robert? She thought, well, I asked her specifically about the time when Dolly visited them and there was a language barrier, but she said they spoke with their eyes. But Bill, tell them about when the gift arrived and just the reaction to it. Cause I think it's, I think it's really practical of Susan, what she, well, you tell them. Yeah. There's a picture of it in Josh's book. Uh, one day at the door arrived a huge package it was from Salvador Dali, and they opened it, and uh, lo and behold, it was a harp. And the harp was a different kind of harp that you would normally see. It, its frame was the same, but the frame was covered with uh, uh, silverware. It was all pasted <laughs> on, and 
and there was cellophane over the entire frame. And then uh, for the strings, instead, they were barbed wire that was constructed for the harp. And this was Dolly's present to Dad uh, with this weird-looking object that sat in our our um, living room, I guess, for maybe five or six months. And then uh, one day Susan says, I can't stand this thing. This is awful. (laughs) (laughs) Who would ever want anything like that? And she went and she took it to the garbage. And we have no no idea whether that garbage man is worth $260 million. What Gilbert said, what it would be worth today. There's a great picture of it in Josh's book, where and he posed for a mock fo- a, a, a gag photo, right? He bandaged up his hands. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, uh, Dolly. They had a correspondence before Dolly came over to paint him, and Dolly sent the harp, and then Harper wrote back with a photograph of him with his hands all bandaged up, and um, and he wrote, you know, um, you know, thanks, thanks for the harp. Uh, and uh, if you ever come this way, I'd you know be happy to be smeared by you uh, as long as I could return the favor. So he's basically saying, if you come to America, we can paint each other. You know, right. it's easy to say, oh, what would that harp be worth? But if you knew Susan, it was just a harp that no one could play. Right. What the hell do we need it for? <laughs> right. She was really practical. No practical. Yeah. practical right. In right. every right. sense. Right. But- Boy, oh boy, your great, great, great grandparents could, I mean, your great, great, great grandkids could probably retire on what that harp would go for. Well, I, what I love, what I love about, about Robert's uh, uh, experience with Susan, that it, uh, it was the way she told it, she never told it to me. He had a very, very close relationship with her for what a year or so. I think it was. And, we worked on the book for a couple of years, but I spent a couple of weeks with her in Rancho Mirage, and then we corresponded a lot. And I visited again, but we we talked on the phone. We wrote letters and things, and she was just really great about it. But what I noticed is she didn't necessarily want to finish the book. She wanted to keep working on the book. Oh, there's which something might, sweet which about might that. Might be why we never finished it. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I did try to get her to talk about the Dali visit and the mm-hmm. screenplay. And this is not something you'd put on the jacket for a blurb because I asked her what she thought of it. And she said, an absolute piece of crap and a waste of time. <laughs> I actually put, I put that in the book. You did. That's I right. I did. It's in there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> See, this is one of those that if the movie had been made, I, you know, I, I know it would be beyond horrible but i wish to god it had been made yeah that would it would have been absolutely fascinating well the key thing is chico would have needed the money so he would have been on board yeah. absolutely well, <laughs> well, you, why you, don't why don't you ask groucho why <laughs> this movie should have been made oh god <laughs> okay I'm, I'm gonna be well, groucho you, didn't actually want uh, he actually had a pretty rough response to it too he said uh he said, uh, it's not funny. It wouldn't play. Wouldn't play. Yeah. But Gilbert, if you were Groucho and I was to ask you, why didn't the Dolly movie get made? Because Chico 
Well, as, as my mother would say, <laughs> she, whenever she started a sentence that she uh, was rather negative, uh, the first two words that came out of her mouth, um, oh, Christ, that was that. She said, oh, Christ, it's, it's no good. Oh, oh, Christ, it's this and that. Um, th- those were her two favorite words. <laughs> you know, one so. of the greatest things about talking to Susan was, her completely candid assessments of the Marx Brothers. Oh, jeez. It was really incredible because when my Groucho book came out, I sent a copy to her back in 93 when it came out. And when I was talking to her, I didn't ask her what she thought of it or anything. She said, I really liked your book. I like it better than I like Groucho. Yeah, I, I was, I was, I was, re- Bill, I was reading your book and you said that, that she was one of the women that would not put up with Groucho's insults. That's right. Yeah, and he, and she was, <clears throat> at least in my lifetime, was the one woman that he respected and dearly loved. He 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 really loved her. I think partly because uh, he knew how good she was for her, his brother. Groucho would say in interviews that Harpo, all the good qualities that. Uh, the Marx Brothers' mother, Minnie, had were in Harpo. He inherited all of her good qualities. Well, I would like to kick the bucket knowing that I had no enemies. That's really basically my my hope and belief that uh, I'm going I'm going to work on that as best as I could because Dad died without an enemy. He, he oh, really that's nice. did. It's not a very easy thing to do, and uh, I, I'm trying to emulate him uh, uh, very poorly, I might add. <laughs> That's nice, Bill. There's a great line in your book, by the way, but I think it was Ben attributed to Ben Hecht, who said uh, the Harpo could light up a room simply by sitting yeah. in it, which is, a, which is yeah. a beautiful thing. I know I'm paraphrasing. And but in the entire some... realm of show business, you cannot find anyone with an unkind word to say yes. about Harpo. Yeah, what a lovely thing. And I've never found anybody with an unkind word to say about Bill, except the three of us here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gilbert will will have that same let reputation me, oh, yes. when, when he's gone. Let me let me just let get me back add to myself. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let me get back to Josh's book for a second. So, Josh, you you yeah. did, you also you imagined you imagined it of a certain period. You were as long as you were taking this sort of what if ride. You imagined that it wasn't just made by the Marx Brothers, but it was made under Thalberg. Yeah. Well, in order to pull it off, I felt it was really important to uh, focus on authenticity and make some rules um, and that I should stick by the rules. Otherwise it would be a big mess. So the big, the first rule was that it was 1937 and this was actually being made then it wasn't being made 10 years later. It wasn't, it was being made when it would have been made 1937. The other rule was um, MGM would have never greenlit it in a million years had Thalberg, uh, you know, not been there. And unfortunately he wasn't, he had passed away. Sure. So I, resurrected Thalberg and uh, so that he could green light it. Um, <laughs> because what really happened is Harpo managed to get a meeting, a meeting. with Louis B. Mayer. Yes. And uh, Mayer didn't feel very kindly. Mayer wasn't a big Marx Brothers fan. Yes. Oh. But yes. One of the little known things is that the Marx Brothers weren't actually signed to MGM. Mayer didn't want them. They had a contract with Thalberg to work at MGM in what was then like the Thalberg production unit. And the reason the Marx Brothers really left MGM after a day at the races is because 
they had a clause in the contract that if Thalberg was unavailable for 30 days or something, they could terminate the contract. Well, he was dead, so he was unavailable for 30 days. They, are, they actually re-signed with MGM. People say something, oh, they got loaned out or they went over to RKO for one picture and came back. They made a totally separate deal at RKO for three pictures, only ended up making one because room service didn't do that well. And then Mayer got nervous when they signed with RKO for big money, and he signed them to a three-picture deal before room service even came out. But Thalberg was the reason they were there, and when Thalberg was gone, they were gone. Did I step on you too much no, there, Josh? No, I, I wanted you to take it away because I didn't know what the hell I was going to say next in order That's to why I'm here. not make a mistake <laughs> with the, the, you know, that history. I also found it interesting that you were a little sad that you couldn't use Zeppo. You were, you were, yes. you were being faithful to the period. Yes. And, but you're a Zeppo fan, I, I, as I, I think all of us are. And, and actually, at, at the last minute, there was like five days left before the, the book had to be... Um, Mm -hmm. uh, frozen in time. And I, I said, I'm adding Zeppo in and I'm adding a reference to Mrs. Rittenhouse in because I was like, Oh my God, there's no <laughs> reference to, to, there's no ref. And, and the thing is, is that in theory, this, the idea of this movie is that this is a prequel to all the Marx brothers movies. So in, in theory, this is like, this is my, my George Lucas going back, you know, thing. So, because I wanted to have a, a clean, a fresh start. I didn't want there to be these others. This was the the first story, and I fi I figured it that would actually help because um, I it would make it okay for me to put in some references to some of their other movies without it being me stealing from those movies because really those movies were stealing from me, you know. Because this <laughs> happened before those Got movies. Got it. I don't know if that'll hold up in court, but it, I love it. Interesting yeah. take. Yeah. And, and Harpo. <laughs> He's playing like a, a Spanish diplomat. Well, that's what, that's, well, that's what throws you right away. It's not Harpo and a Harpo playing a Harpo character. Please don't ask me about this part. I have no idea <laughs> what I did. No. You're waiting to see Harpo in, in a wig and yeah. beeping the horn and the big coat. And, and instead, he's like a Spanish diplomat. Well, he's not technically Harpo at first. This oh, is an origin story. Okay. Right. This is the origin <laughs> This is the origin story of how Harpo became Harpo and how the surrealist woman became this uh, the first surrealist superhero. This is a graphic novel, so you have to have origin story. Absolutely. In in no, I, sorry, Bill. The the book is masterfully, uh, artfully done by some lady. Is that correct? Manuela Pertega yes. in Barcelona, Spain. Yeah, she really captures she, Dolly. Yeah. She certainly does, and the the same thing can be said for the layout of Robert's most recent uh, debacle. Have it right in front of me. Four of the Three Musketeers. It is a phenomenal book. It is if you're a Marx Brother fan, and even if you're not, I've read it twice. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor. Before we jump off on this, as long as we've got Bill on the phone yes. and we brought Zeppo up, yeah, and we'll come back to the we'll come back to the various books. But but uh, Bill Gilbert and I, and I assume the two gentlemen sitting here with us, are of the opinion that that the Marx Brothers pictures are better with Zeppo in them. And and I would love your take. I think people would be interested to hear. Well, okay, the My four versus the three. That, that the. Um Mark, Mark's brother Paramount Pictures were 
funnier straight through. Uh, they were really kind of more the Marx Brothers. And when they went over to MGM, uh, Thalberg saw them as headliners that they should have been, and uh, he made motion pictures where intermittently they were absolutely hilarious. He brought in a love interest along with it. He had a more complete uh, fun-for-the-whole-family type of concept for them. Uh, my, uh, uh, I, I still think that probably Night at the Opera is the best picture that they made it's not my favorite <laughs> my favorite and, and uh, hold on to your hats i know what my you're gonna favorite- say <laughs> what go ahead you're gonna say your favorite picture is go west yes how did you know that <laughs> we all know that but we forgive you yeah yeah that i i think i i think i want to hang up on you i'm sorry bill <laughs> well, well get, give it give us you, you have specific reasons fun. It was, it was my favorite picture because the brothers didn't want to do it, and they they went ahead and did it anyway. And you could tell Groucho's energy wasn't there, and Chico his his energy was long gone by then. Uh, I, I I feel that Dad carried that picture, and he was so wonderful in it. And maybe that's just because I'm his son, and and I I look for little things uh, at the dinner table, or uh, when he's practicing the harp, or when he's playing the harp. I, I looked at a, at him in that picture as pure dad. I didn't see him as Harpo. That's sweet. And and that's why it's my favorite picture. But far away, not as good as others. I agree with Bill that it's a wonderful Harpo picture. And I think Mm -hmm. the stuff they did in their stage tour for it, it really is the best stuff in the film. That opening sequence in the station is brilliant. That's good. Incredible Marx Brothers. And it's one of those (laughs) rarely seen things with the three of them together doing something really funny. And that you don't see much of that. Mm -hmm. But I don't really watch Go West the same way that I watch, say, Monkey Business. I know Josh is a fan oh, of Monkey that's, Business. That's a great movie. Yeah, I love that. And Harpo yeah. kind of steals the show in a lot of Monkey Business too. And I, I mean, I think most, I, I believe, and I think most people that their ultimate, the peak, was Duck Soup. I love Duck Soup, but I'm a Monkey Business guy. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. I'm a Horse Feathers guy. Oh, Horse Feathers is great. I just love too. Horse Feathers. Yeah, but on it's any given day, one I saw, on so. any given day, I could say Duck Soup is my favorite. Right, right. It's how I wake up in the morning, it's which one is my favorite Paramount. You know? Bill, tell us about being on the set of Love Happy when you were a kid. What what memories do you have? I was eleven and a half years old, and Dad was having a tough time in the movie with the producer, and it was not supposed to be a Marx Brother picture. Well, it turned out to be a Marx Brother picture, and the produce, producer had been lying all along. It was to be just a picture that, uh, featuring Dad. And anyway, it, it was one of the more uh, sour experiences in his uh, professional career. But he went ahead and he did this movie as the, as the, uh, the lead, and it was not uh, the dad that I 
knew right at that time. I I resurrected his, his image when I went to uh, uh, Great Britain after the movie was completed. We did a vaudeville tour with Chico. But uh, he, there, there was a moment in my time, which I will not forget, and that is that I went down to the set one day, and during a break, I said, Here, Dad... Look at what I just made in school. I, I had been forced uh, to paint something or draw something, and I draw a pastel of a Palomino horse. And I was so proud of myself. And it wasn't very good, I guess. I don't know. But I showed it to Dad, and he said, that's the most wonderful picture. Uh, it's just fabulous, and and uh, you keep up the good work. Well, of course, I, I could hardly draw a straight line. But nevertheless, he, he gave me that kind of encouragement all along that I really wish that parents would give their children uh, and, and give them purpose, give them a, a feeling of importance, uh, and a passion for doing something that they love. And that's what we had with music, Dad and I. We, we, he was the most passionate man when it came to sitting down and discovering himself. He was a guy who wouldn't have known Shostakovich from Frank Sinatra, but he paid attention over the years and listened to all kinds of music, and he learned how to play things that many harpists couldn't play, and he never read a note of music. So we had a, a, a fun time together developing a way for him to learn new songs. He was... I just wish parents would encourage their children uh, the way he encouraged me. I mean, I, I, he he had confidence in me that I didn't have, uh, but he kept prodding me softly, and uh, I wound up uh, being a part of his his professional life for absolutely. twelve years. Absolutely, there's a thing I'd like to just point out about sure. Harpo that I learned from Groucho's daughter Miriam. Yeah. Things weren't always so wonderful at Groucho's house when she was a teenager, and she used to, like, escape and run over to Harpo's house to be around them because she just wanted to be around him. And Susan always said, why don't you stay for dinner? And they just gave her that haven. Like, life at Harpo's house would be like a dream. I mean, there's something surreal about that. What kid wouldn't want to be there? That's that great picture in your book, Bill. Uh, I guess it's from Christmas with you and your siblings. And it's just the picture yeah. of the picture of happiness. And it might have been taken well, in April because the Christmas tree stayed up like all year. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did stay up a long time. And we had lights outside in the jacaranda tree. And one year, it was Christmas lights. And one year after Christmas, Dad said, let's keep them on all year round so we don't have to, you know, uh, do this again next year. And... And he decided that at the end of a, a particular day that somebody might have done something really well in school or whatever, we would turn the lights on that night to celebrate uh, Minnie's, uh, I don't know, paper on 
you know, horses and Jimmy's uh, ability to do something and Alex is the same. And, and so we use those lights to great advantage. That's, that's one tree that uh, never came down after Christmas. That's lovely. So other than the ability to speak, it seems like Harpo really was that character on screen and off. Uh, you could say that. And in fact, I think I just heard you say it. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, Bill, tell us, since Gilbert brought up the, the not speaking, and Robert, it's in your book, uh, tell us about uh, Dad turning down uh, a, a significant sum of money. When he was offered uh, to say one word. Oh, oh, that's a night in Casablanca. Uh, David Lowe wanted Harpo to say the word murder. Mm-hmm. And, well, do you want me to, I could tell it. Either one of you. Sure. Um, his, his answer was, I'm not going to tear down something I've spent decades building. And he was offered something, I think, $50,000. Admirable. To say, to say the one word. Now, I'm sure Chico would have said, do you want me to not talk for fifty thousand uh, yeah. dollars? <laughs> what Chico would have done for an extra fifty grand in nineteen forty six, right? <laughs> Harpo and Chico agreed to play a UK tour together, and Chico went out there first and played his own stuff, and they didn't rehearse anything. And when Harpo came out, they were going to do something together, and Harpo went to see Chico's act, and he came back to Susan, and he was really disgusted because he said it's all blue. Chico's doing blue material, mm-hmm. and that really upset Harpo. So Chico disappointed Harpo and Susan was really, when I talked to her about it in 1995, she was still pissed off about it. Yeah. Yep. You're right. They went to the UK because Chico had to have money. And, uh, William Morris, I think it was Jack Kalsheim was their, uh, agent there. Uh, he said, okay, uh, Harpo, you're going to get 75%, and Chico, 25%, and Dad said, no, I'm not going. It's a 50-50 split. And uh, and that was the way it wound up. And that's one of the reasons why Dad was very hurt by Chico's behavior, uh, is that he, he uh, was willing to do this basically for Chico. Dad didn't have to go to the UK, uh, really, uh, not because he had enough money, but he, he was tired. He had finished a picture, and he was, oh, let's see, 19, uh, 88, 12, and, 12, and uh, he was already in his 60s. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's and, and Mom saw the effect that it had on uh, Dad, and I think that's, what really stayed with her and why uh, she reacted uh, the way she did when Robert was there. Interesting. Bill, uh, the one thing I really want you to mention uh, that was just very profound discovery for me was when when I, I came to visit you and I saw that on all the walls there were paintings and I asked you, who are all these paintings by? And you said, Dad. And it just blew my mind because... Um, I've been a Marx Brothers fan and particularly a Harpo fan my entire life. You expected something different. You expected photographs from the movies. Photographs from the movies. And and the last thing I expected was to find out that my hero Harpo was a painter and, and, and really cared about it. And, and um, I was hoping, and and, you know, that was sort of for me, the greatest uh, discovery in, in writing this book and in telling the story of Harpo and Dolly's 
a short friendship, but how it affected their lives in so many ways with Dali, you know, um, ending up writing this movie for the Marx Brothers and, and Harpo, you know, really, uh, I think, partially appreciating Dali's interest in him because, you know, he was painting too. And I think he appreciated uh, that that artistry. I was hoping you'd maybe talk a little about that. Well, Dad had a heart attack. <clears throat> I forget what year he had. 1958, uh, I think, he started having heart attacks. Okay. Uh, and he got very depressed because the doctor said you will not be able to work for about a year uh, at your profession. And so he got very depressed and, and uh, um, decided that he had to find something creative inside of himself. And so he discovered going back to painting. He had painted over over the years. He had painted, dabbled just a little bit here and there. And it, there's a wonderful picture of a clown that's in Harpo Speaks. At, uh, uh, and uh, a picture of uh, something that he did, a self-portrait in my book. And so he he went and he started to paint, and he realized that this was another part of his passion uh, of just discovering things. He was, you know, he could have been Christopher Columbus. He was always out to discover something, <laughs> and uh, and and he he just. Loved doing it. He would sit for seven, eight hours in his uh, studio, working away, and think nothing of it. And then, of course, he was able to go back to work, and uh, and then he had another heart attack. And then in 1961, uh, he was after that heart attack. He was no longer depressed. He said, "What am I? What? Why am I being this way? I'm, I'm from now on, I'm on, on velvet. I'm living on velvet." That was his uh, statement, and he uh, it changed his whole attitude about everything. And if you research what he did in 1961. Till the time he passed in 1964, you'll realize he collaborated on a on a biography, his autobiography. He uh, did numerous television shows as a guest artist. He did uh, a number of concerts, charity concerts. Uh, he was all over the place uh, and. Even I think he even played uh, golf with Sam Snead around in that time. Uh, there was a show called Celebrity Golf. And he was more active in those three years, living on velvet, than he had been in the previous ten years. I love that. Love that expression. I'd be remiss if I didn't do a shameless plug for the Marx Brothers TV collection and DVD set, which contains <laughs> celebrity golf with Harpo and Sam Snead. Right. I heard, I heard that he liked to occasionally take his clothes off on the golf course. <laughs> <Bill>. <laughs> well, you can, uh, I had the privilege of hawking his book when it came out in paperback in 1985. <clears throat> Excuse me. And 
uh, went up and down the East Coast, and I wound up on the David Letterman show. Oh, yeah. And if you want, you can YouTube it, and uh, it shows my appearance on the Letterman show, and I talk about being the first person probably that uh, ever played a round of golf with a guy who was totally nude. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember what Letterman asked you? (laughs) Where did he keep the tees? Right. <laughs> didn't you say, Bill? Didn't you say in your book that he would he would hit a couple of holes and then jump into somebody's swimming pool to cool off and then get back on the course? Precisely. Yeah, <laughs> he's a happy guy. It was it was 110 <laughs> degrees and and um, down where we, he lived in Palm Springs, and so, <laughs> but he was a he could have been a legitimate nudist had he not been a famous person. I love that. <laughs> there's a phrase that Bill once there's a phrase Bill once used that I love. He called his father a pioneer nudist. <laughs> I love that. That's great. What about the show that Harpo did a strange show in Russia? <clears throat> well, I know that uh, uh, Robert would be able to tell you a little bit about that. I was never here. I hadn't been conceived yet. Well, neither was I. <laughs> <laughs> no excuse, Bill. Well, I could tell you this. Alexander Wolcott, Harpo's great friend, was really the promoter behind getting him to go there. He was the first Western artist to go post-Russian Revolution to play in the then Soviet Union. And he went there in December of 33. He played Leningrad in Moscow. And in Harpo Speaks, there's just some wonder. I recommend everybody who's hearing this who hasn't read Harpo That's Speaks immediately, immediately catch yep. up and go out and get a copy of that book right now. Stop listening to this and go get Harpo Speaks. Well, actually, after you get my book. <laughs> after your <laughs> on Horvath and, and Bader's book. Right. Presumably, yeah. they have our books. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're here. But he talks about the experience of going to Russia and creating a show to do there. And there's a wonderful story where he is asked to do some of his stuff in front of an arts council of avowed <laughs> communists with zero sense of humor in a cold, empty theater. And he's doing the thing where he's dropping the knives and they're looking at him like, who is this and what are we doing here? <laughs> and I just read it in Harpo Speaks. It's charming. But he went there as almost like an arts liaison mm-hmm. to the United States. And he got standing ovations and, you know, he would joke about it because well, of, of his last yeah. name. Yeah. <laughs> The interesting thing uh, that I I took away from all of this is that he had had to prove to the authorities that 300 knives in your suitcase was not to go after the the head of the Soviet Union, you know. (laughs) And and, and they said, well, show us what, what, what it is. And he did his routine uh, for the the authorities, and as they and as they were dropping, it turns out that they had a carpet, and you couldn't hear the the sound of the, <laughs> the knives dropping, which is half of the fun. And oh. The way he spaced everything, and uh, and he was terrified that they because nobody laughed at all. It was, it was, uh, but somehow or another, I don't remember why they still allowed him to do that. Uh, ultimately, uh, just uh, one of the main reasons was that uh, Wolcott 
was really kind of the reason that Dad called. He said, you know, there's this lady, I'm a confirmed bachelor, and I'm 44 years old, 45 years old, and she's pressing me to get married. Of course, that was Susan. He says, i got to get away from this between pictures. What can you do? And Alexander Wolcott arranged for the tour of Russia. I just thought I'd throw that in. What year yeah. was that? Late 33. And, and what is your middle name, Bill? My middle name is, let me look at my, hang on inside my lapel here. It says, made expressly <laughs> for William Wolcott Mark. There you go. There's something else in Harpo Speaks about Russia that I love. They assigned him a pair of writers because they thought his show was incomprehensible and the audience wouldn't go for it. And Harpo, in the book, calls the writers Kaufmansky and Riskendoff after Kaufman That's and funny. That's great. And I, I heard they, they added, it was just like, that was surreal, what they did to this show. It was like people running around on stage. Yeah, they, they made an 18-minute vaudeville act out of it where he didn't know what the plot was. He didn't care. But he would take his cue and just go do the part where Harpo... It's almost like the joke of... Susan would talk about this. They'd give him a Marx Brothers script, and they didn't know how to write for Harpo, and they would just say, Harpo does something funny here, or Harpo business. And mm-hmm. you can see original manuscripts where it says Harpo business, and it's his job to come up with what Harpo's going to do. And in the Russian one-act play that was apparently 18 minutes long, um, they would do this little plot with these Russian actors, and then Harpo would come on and drop some knives, and they'd all look at him like he was crazy, and then... <laughs> They would do something, and then Harper would play the clarinet, and then they would do right. something. It just they'd worked them in. That's really funny. It seems to be like a, a running thing over generations because Dolly's script, uh, he wrote, you know, this uh, basically a treatment, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, and it was mostly just these crazy scenes and ideas and small character descriptions that gave some hints as to what the movie was supposed to be about. But whenever there was going to be a Marx Brothers bit, he didn't know how to write Marx Brothers bits. So he would put in the margin, in between his scenes, insert Marx Brothers mayhem here. And so that's how we... It's been going on for generations. generations. What did you think when you found out that he was going to attempt this this, uh, impossible project, Robert? Well, I thought he was crazy. Yeah. Which, if you want to deal with the estates of the Marx Brothers, that's a good attribute. So I thought he was in a good position to do it. Yeah, you know it's 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 really an interesting thing because he took up. First of all, what I love is a guy who wants to cover something about the Marx Brothers that hasn't been touched. Yeah, so I thought that was great starting point for him. Uh, I also want to just say that this podcast is very much like one of the Paramounts because Zeppo vanished after twenty minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The Zeppo conversation. I I got more Zeppo questions. I got more Zeppo, but yeah, but what I what I do. I, I've even got gummo questions, buddy. Oh, I, I, just, I had lunch with Gummo's son last week. I there could, you go. Oh, we can talk a little gummo. There you now, go. Th- there's a story. I don't know if, if either one of you, if you probably know it or want to tell it, of Harpo when he was in a cab with Alexander Wolcott, and Alexander Wolcott falls asleep. And I and I heard what happened was so. Wolcott's asleep in the cab, and Harpo says to the cab driver, he gives him directions to like a 
a strip club <laughs> in Brooklyn. You know this story, Robert? No, but I like it. And and he, you know, and and Harpo gets out at his stop, and the cab driver's driving him to a strip club in Brooklyn, Wolcott. And then at about three in the morning, the phone rings at Harpo's house, and Harpo says, hello, and Wolcott goes, you fucking Jew. <laughs> oh, I've heard that story. I think he calls him a Jew son of a bitch. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know, does this ring a bell, Bill? And a fawn's ass. Have, and a yeah, fawn's, they, ass. fawn's ass was a good term. I have a gummo story I think Frank is going to like. <laughs> okay, go for it. Because this is a Bob Mark story who's Bill's cousin, uh-huh. good friend of all. And when Bob was about nine years old, they were asking the kids in the classroom who their fathers were and what they did. And Bob said that his father was Harpo. And Harpo was, you know, the ideal father. Everybody, Bill can attest to that. When Gummo found out, he says, Bobby, why did you tell them that Harpo was your father? He goes, come on, Dad, who ever heard of you? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. Yeah, it it could be a a, a knife in the back, uh, you know, uh, you look at it that way. But no, it's just a kid, you know, trying to make it in in the schoolroom, you know, that's all. And Bob doesn't have a a mean bone in his body, but uh, I guess he was just being quite honest. He's a funny guy, though. He's funny at nine. That's a good line. (laughs) Yeah, and yeah, we, it is. It, we yeah. were having yeah. a discussion before we got on the air of some stuff that, and I think Groucho would get in trouble a lot when he'd be interviewed. Yeah, and there's some really good stuff in some of the interviews from the 70s where he was not caring anymore and maybe a little compromised. And, you know, it's all well known to everyone that, Gilbert's impersonation of old man Groucho. Gilbert's also compromised. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we can tell this because Gilbert got to meet Chico's daughter, Maxine, towards the end of her life. And he used to do a, a pretty devastating imitation of Groucho as an elderly man. And he would freak Maxine out with it occasionally. <laughs> and, you know, there's an interview that, was done in the 70s. Richard J. Anoboli did books mm-hmm. we all know. Yeah, the scrapbook. March for the Scrapbook, of yeah. course, with a lot of really great interviews with Groucho, but Groucho ended up trying to sue to have the book stopped, but it was too late because the interviews were published uncensored, shall we say. And there's one of them where he's talking about a particular act that the Marx Brothers had before Chico was with them. And Anoboli innocently says to Groucho, you ready, Gilbert? Yeah. He innocently says to Groucho, and where was Chico at this time? Chico was out getting cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I just do what I'm told, Frank. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Bill, Bill, are you having flashbacks? Oh, yeah. We can cut any of this out, by the way, Bill. <laughs> I mean, I heard, too, around that time, I remember, after he did his one-man show... Uh, they interviewed him for some, you know, a bunch of interviews, and he started like going, you know, uh, well, George Burns tried to do a one man show, it was terrible, and no one saw it, and it was he he was constantly getting in trouble like that. Yeah, he was unfortunately not quite himself at a certain point, and there are some speculative things about him being medicated 
uh, oh, ways that he uh, might not have needed. Uh, you know, look, it's a whole other show about the later years of Groucho. Bill, Bill, you you were at the house for for, for a lot of those yeah. those those Groucho oh, special yeah. evenings where he would have guests over, Elliot Gould and Bud Court and all of those people. Yep. What 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 yep. were your memories of those evenings? And and also, we're dying to know what 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 did you think of Aaron? Okay, uh, I'd like to address one more Gummo story. Go ahead. Okay, uh, and I would like to finally include Zeppo in this entire conversation. <laughs> They're trying to work him in, <laughs> the, 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 just like they did at the Paramount. Feds, <laughs> the feds called Gummo. And said, we're looking for your brother. Where is he? And Gummo said, why? Because Gummo was their uh, personal manager. And they said, because uh, uh, the IRS is after him, and uh, we he owes a lot of money and all this kind of thing. And Gummo said, well, you guys are not looking very hard because he's in only one of two places. He's either on a horse or a woman. <laughs> oh, Chico. <laughs> no, that was Zeppo. Oh, about Zeppo. And I'll tell you something. I love it. People who knew him, like Susan especially, Zeppo was more of a hardcore gambler than Chico. And really? As, and as much of a womanizer. And the thing that Susan said that always stuck with me, as a gambler, Chico was in it for the fun and the game of it, and he didn't care if he won or lost. He just loved having a game. Zeppo would try to kill you with gambling, and he wanted to take your money, and he wanted to take it all. And he was just a violent gambler. And this is like Susan talking about him. And he had a bit of a gangster streak. And there's a great story that when Chico got married for the second time in 1958, Zeppo was going to be his best man. But he was unable to attend because he was under federal subpoena in a racketeering case in Indianapolis. Wow. That's right. That's right. He knows his stuff. What, what about those nights at Groucho's, Bill? I mean, I've heard you say that he was never really happy unless he had an audience. Yeah, he, he never uh, was... Uh, he was always a fish out of the water unless he had an audience. He was basically a pretty unhappy kind of guy toward the end because his whole life is it was a performing seal. He had to be on. He had to do something. And so... Aaron Fleming, uh, his uh, girl Friday, uh, Saturday and Sunday, she made sure. Uh, she would arrange these parties. Uh, I remember them being mostly on Thursday night uh, where everybody would come up the hill to where, where he lived in uh, Truesdale Estates to pay homage to uh, Captain Spaulding or Dr. Hackenbush, <clears throat> neither of which were there anymore. Mm -hmm. But Groucho w would be in, well, he would be in his 80s then, and uh, they would invite people for dinner and then a show. And it, it was... It was. I just wish Salvador Dali had been there, because it was about as bizarre an experience. We had people making an effort to enjoy themselves rather than just enjoying themselves. Occasionally they did, but it was it was kind of a macabre thing to to be a part of until. Groucho got up and sang Peasy Weezy is a Bull Bad Man. And then the 
the party came to life. I played the piano there. That's when mm-hmm. Groucho had me. Uh, and uh, I, we met everybody there. I mean, there was always somebody showing up, of three, four, five people, and it went on until one, two o'clock in the morning. And Groucho was... the the only time Groucho was happy was when he was uh, performing. Then he would go in at about nine o'clock at night and have a, his, a, a, a picture uh, uh, with a couple of beautiful girls that would lie next to him in the bed, and then he would go off to sleep, and the party would just keep going on without him. But it, truly, for me, and I was only in my thirties at that time. Uh, I, I didn't really know what was going on in terms of how unique this evening would be, or uh, or any of these evenings, because all I did was just uh, observe people, and and it, it only came to my mind how strange the whole thing was mm-hmm. uh, uh, years later. Uh, it takes a little uh, to, uh, time for things to sink in to me. And when you have a different perspective and you look back and you say, oh, my God, I, I was a numbnuts at that time. I didn't I really. And in answer to your question about Aaron Fleming, uh, I would say she was a real piece of work. And uh, I uh, just went along with the program. And uh, for whatever it's worth, um, she kept Groucho alive for seven years by appealing to his ego, by finding things for him to do, uh, to get get an Academy Award, this, that. She would throw these parties so that he could perform for a half hour. And she and he would sing Peasy Weezy. That was the big, and then of course uh, he he would uh, sing, you know, Father's Day or one of those songs. But most importantly, she kept him going for better or for worse. And there, and believe me, it was worse. But the better part was that she appealed to who Groucho really thought he was. And she was able to control him like no other woman could. And uh, that's why he had an extra seven, eight years with her and, and in, in his life. Yeah, she, she knew the buttons to push on, does this on show Groucho. Have, does this show ever have profound observations? Never. Okay, but wow. we'll try one. Yeah. At be the, nice time for one. Yeah. At the age of 15, Groucho was being pushed to perform by a very ambitious woman who, woman who wanted to be in show business, Minnie. Minnie was living vicariously through 15-year-old Groucho. At the age of 85, <laughs> he's in the exact same position with Aaron. Fascinating. It's fascinating. That's, that's a wonderful observation. Yeah. I just made it up. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, now, not, if not for Al Sheen, uh, would, would, uh, would Groucho have gone into show business anyway? Did he want it that badly? Was Minnie pushing him that hard? You know, Zeppo did an interview with the BBC at the end of his life, and he said Groucho would have made it in show business because he wanted it on his own. The rest of us would have probably ended up dead or in jail. Interesting. So yeah. even even it wasn't just Al Sheen's success. It wasn't just me. I think Al Sheen's success probably attracted Groucho. I think mm-hmm. that's what kind of got him going on it. What were we going to say, Gil? 
Oh, I was uh, I was going to put you on the spot, Bill, as I do with all our guests. Uh, if you know the words, could you sing any of Peasy Weezy for us? Peasy Weezy, he's our man. Peasy Weezy's a bold bad man. He will catch you if he can. Peasy Weezy was a bold man. <laughs> I'm picturing Groucho chasing Dinah Shore. <laughs> the lyrics are in the book. I know. Thank you. Bill, Bill that was terrific. Bill, Bill, tell us a story from your book. It's about you you performing in Allentown, Pennsylvania in 1985. It's a sweet story. Oh, yeah. Um, it was called Symphony Hall. I did a tour for Columbia Artists with an, a gal uh, who played the harp, and we did all dad's arrangements and we had a book show and that's how i first met robert uh, he came down to see, to see it when well, you were in your early uh, 20s i think i was just a young uh, young march brother yeah, mm -hmm. yeah so um, i'm uh, finishing the show and we go back to the dressing room and and a, a young man comes up he's in his 30s and he says i just want you to know bill uh that uh my dad was in the pit uh, and, uh, rehearsing animal crackers when, when they would do uh, try the show out before they went in. So it was in 1929 or 1930, I can't remember. But it, it, he says, my dad actually performed for the, with the Marx Brothers. Uh, it was his dad or his grandfather. I think it was his dad. Anyway, um, and he said, well, even more so, your dad performed on this stage and you are now dressing in the dressing room that he dressed in. I love that. All those in years later. Six, 66 years later. I love that. Yeah. That's and, great. And it... it, it, it goes to show you things come around and uh, I, that was an amazing moment in my life to to f find somebody in what was it frederick maryland wasn't it? i think it's allentown pennsylvania oh, well, the allentown story oh allentown, yeah, allentown, allentown if i would never correct bill so i'm probably wrong of course no was, you are right <laughs> it was it was alsatia's which had its world premiere in allentown and it was 1923 oh, got it got it we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Okay, I'm going to let but you guys I, make the case for Zeppo because I know Josh is a big Zeppo fan and he's a monkey business fan. Can I say something that Groucho said about Zeppo that I love? Go. Oh. He said, "With Zeppo, our act was worth a million dollars. Without him, it was worth two million. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the old joke about how to make a million dollars in the restaurant business. But Josh, because you you want you you were you were sorry that you couldn't include Zeppo, and I heard you making the case for Zeppo, particularly in Animal Crackers. Yes, no, I. There was something about them. There was something that that he brought that not even the Zeppo impersonators, Alan Jones and Tony Martin, brought to it. Yeah, I mean, well, so. I, you know, at the very beginning of this uh, of our talking, I was saying how I really wanted to include him in some way, and, yeah. and um, I ran out of time. But I, I, I told, I, I made a deal with the publisher that if we sold the amount of copies we needed in order to re do a reprint, that I wanted five days to add in 
Zeppo and Mrs. Rittenhouse to to the end of it somehow. You Perfect. Know? Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I I know a part of my love for um, Zeppo's characters in the movies was because I grew up rewatching um, Animal Crackers, Coconuts, Duck Soup, mm-hmm. particularly Monkey Business mm-hmm. um, uh, when I was very, when I was little, and I think that. Um, as a child, seeing Zeppo, he was, I don't, I, you can't, I don't like calling him the, the straight man because he was really funny. I mean, he, he, he wasn't Harpo funny. He wasn't Groucho funny. He wasn't, but he, he made the comedy of that work. And so therefore he was a part of that funny that was happening. And, but I feel like he was the one you could, re, you could relate to him as the, as the normal one, yep. you know, and, you know, when you're little, you think of yourself as the normal one. And then when you get older, you think of yourself as the the, the crazy one, you know. He the, had he certainly had his moments. Zeppo, I mean the hunger dunger scene. Yeah. Zeppo has a surreal gag in Duck Soup when he comes in with his hat his hat's been sliced yeah, in half. Yeah. It's great. You know, there's a lot to be said but, for Zeppo. Well, and his acting. I mean, I, it's funny you mentioned that moment because we showed Duck Soup um at my first book event in in Austin last week. And you know, it's there's these beautiful pristine prints now where you see every little, every little crease in the characters because of you know the the. the I highly recommend the Blu-ray of the, set of the Paramounts. Right, no, the yeah, Blu-rays they're, they're amazing. They're great, but you can really see the the reactions. And when 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 Zeppo turns around after the hat breaks and he throws <laughs> it's a great it, take. He's he's, he's he's it's it's like it's perfect. I wish they gave him more funny to Let's do. Just say that Zeppa was really a pro because he was on stage with them for a number of years and he was good. And the thing that I think really is where Zeppo gets the short end of the stick is those Broadway musicals had to be cut down significantly to be made into talking movies in the early part of talkies. And like, for example, Animal Crackers on the Broadway stage was two hours and 40 minutes long. And the first thing they do is cut out most of the musical numbers, which in many cases feature the four of them. Mm-hmm. In Animal Crackers, you had the song where four of the three musketeers, yep. which I stole for the title of my book. But Zeppo really lost a lot of his action as part of the team when those two f- plays were converted into movies. And he has more to do in the first original thing they wrote for the screen in Monkey Business, mostly because Monkey Business is... Yeah. Really an expanded version of Home Again. Yes. They're a great vaudeville show. All of that stage stuff really featured the four Marx Brothers. And what I love about the Paramounts is it's the direct link to what they did on stage. Those scenes where they're the four, like the lobby thing in Coconuts when they're walking past each other over and over. This is stuff that they really perfected from being on stage as a quartet for years. So I think that's the great loss when he's out of the act. And that's well, why those films are special to me. Uh, Zeppo uh, delivered a line in Duck Soup that was funny because of this, what was happening, but the way he delivered it was just wonderful. Hey, you're shooting your own man. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about the four of them and that just... Uh, it's hard to put your finger on. I mean, well, I like the, they balance. It's yes. a perfect balance. Yes. Somebody would occasionally write a very sublime, wonderful line for Zeppo. 
in monkey business when he's trying to flirt with a girl because there's some mighty pretty country around here. Yeah. They're in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, yep, 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 yep. Well, also, I like to think that it gave Groucho somebody to play with because Harpo and Chico always had each other. And Groucho did not interact a ton with Harpo on screen. That's right. And I like this. As, I like the balance, as Josh and, said. I like the balance and the symmetry of the four of them. And you'd think Zeppo, in a situation like that, would seem completely out of place. And yet, he seems comfortable in the scenes. You know, like, he, he doesn't, you don't go, what's this guy doing there? I think the sad thing for Zeppo is he was much more talented than he was ever allowed to show in the Marx Brothers because he joined them to replace Gummo, who, by his own admission, was pretty terrible on stage. <laughs> and he was he had stage fright, he stammered, and Groucho spent many years covering for him when he would lose a line and stammer. It made Groucho a better ad-libber having to cover for Gummo. But Zeppo comes into the act at a point where that fourth Marx brother doesn't really do all that much. Gummo in the early shows played Groucho's son. Zeppo was young enough to really pull that off. Gummo's only two years younger than Groucho. Zeppo is 11 years younger than Groucho. So they really continued playing that bit where he was the son because Zeppo comes in when they're doing home again. So it kind of stunted his a, growth. Go ahead, Bill. I have a, a question to throw out to you guys. Can you imagine Zeppo not in a regular suit, but in something that the Marx Brothers created, you know, for themselves, uh, being in, in normal everyday clothing, um, that represented something, and probably more than Zeppo. Uh, I just wonder why they didn't ultimately dress him up. Is it just because they wanted him as the principal? Except for the last uh, scene in Duck Soup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Interesting. You're, you're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right about that. But can you imagine Zeppo being in anything other than a normal business? I think you're onto something. He sort of becomes a viewpoint character, but it becomes also, a normal guy. It's also interesting yeah. because Cary Grant cited Zeppo's style and his look as something that influenced him. Amazing. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> Bill, you got. We know you got to head out of here. Bill, you got time for two quick uh, questions? Sure. Yeah, What's the capital of South Dakota? I think it's... Uh, uh, General Grant is absolutely right. Pierre, <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it like? You were all of 12 years old, and you went on tour with, with Groucho and Uncle Chico. No, 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 just Chico and Dad. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I misspoke. But, but yes, uh, Chico, Chico and your father. And you, were, you would put yeah. the... You, your, one of your responsibilities was putting the knives that we talked about before, all the cutlery up the sleeve. Oh, I, I became his prop man, and uh, I've been a part of those props all the way up until about two or three years ago when I divested myself of the, the responsibility of looking after them, and I got rid of them. But uh, I, I, I was always a part of the act. At least Dad made me always a part of the act. What did you hang and, on to? Any of the props? Uh, no, they're all at, uh, the props are all at, uh, well, I have, still have a few. Mm -hmm. I, I have a few at the house, but most of them went to the Academy of Motion Pictures. Right. Uh, and and so, uh, but I I had always felt, I mean, those those props and that prop trunk and uh, 
and all, all, a lot of weird items uh, have always come with me wherever I moved and wherever I went. And I, it, it was my responsibility from the time I was 12. At least I felt it. And uh, it was, it, in a way, it was so good to get rid of them and put them in a place where maybe a bunch of people can look at them instead of the 12 people that come through my house uh, every year. It was... It, it, I, it's it's their responsibility now to make oh. those things available for it's generous people. of you. And can, well, can I can I put you on the spot one more time? Can I make Joe? him sing again? Yep. <laughs> and that's because your uncle, uh, you know, who's in the team of uh, Gallagher and Sheen. Can can you sing if you know the words a little bit of their big song? Their big song, uh, Mr. Gallagher or Mr. Sheen. Yes. Now, I never really uh, memorized the, the lyrics on that, but I do know the melody. Uh, it it uh, kind of escapes me. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Mr. Gallagher, positively, Mr. Sheen. Sheen, yeah. Oh, that was, that was a bit. Oh, I, I have one, one quick story, a Groucho story, if you've got time. Of course. Uh, absolutely. Uh, he, he, he donated a lot of his letters to the USC Library uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and they had a big luncheon for him, and Fenneman was there, and was the MC and all, and um, he, he, um, he introduced Groucho, and Groucho was to sing a song, and I, I forget it was, it was "Show Me a Rose" or something like that. And so, and I accompanied him. And about halfway through "Show Me a Rose," he, he wound up in Omaha, Nebraska, which was another song. He just lapsed into that. And uh, but I followed him, and I got I got through it somehow or another, and and he uh, finished strong with uh, Father's Day. Okay, but we didn't rehearse that. Mm-hmm. He just he just went off into space. So we're coming back to the the table, and I'm sitting there, and Groucho comes over to me, and he and he looks down, and he says. I, I I couldn't have done it without you. It was the first time he ever complimented me on anything. Wow. And, and I I remember it so heavily. And it, 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 we, we never had to have, you know, hey, Grouch, you were great. Or Bill, you really did this. Or whatever it is. It was the only time. And it was about three or four weeks before he passed away. Oh, that's a sweet and, memory. Uh, yeah, it is, and there, there, is, there was a warm spot in Groucho. He didn't want to show it very often, and uh, I don't know whether he was the one that said, every time a friend of mine has a success, I die a little. Well, that was Groucho. He was envious of people, but he, he, uh, he had a warm spot somewhere that would come out now and then. And that was one of the moments for me, anyway. That's a nice story. T- t- tell us real quick, Bill, about his last performance um, with, I believe, Alan Sherman. The last time that... Uh, you mean, you mean da- yeah, dad's, your last, dad's, not, dad's, dad's last, excuse me, dad's last performance. 
Going back, well, my mother and I used to always stand in in the uh, the wings, uh, terrified uh, with flop sweat because he he was getting up in years and all of that. And this was in Pasadena Civic Auditorium, and people like Steve Allen were there, and and that too. It was Alan Sherman did the first half, and Dad was to do the second half, and they close out together. And at the <laughs> at the uh, end of the inter- uh, intermission after the first act, Alan came back, and he noticed that uh, there was a, a bottle of champagne on his couch. And Dad, Dad said, this is for you, uh, because as of now, this is my last show. I'm retiring from, from the stage and the screen and everything else. And Alan went into tearful fit. And Dad went out the second uh, half of the show and and was just wonderful. But my mom and I were standing in the wings and fearful that he was going to screw up his harp solo and and forget what he was supposed to do. And it all worked out pretty well. And at the very end, Alan came out and said, uh, uh, you in the audience are experiencing a historic day. Uh, Harpo Marx has uh, announced his retirement from the entertainment industry. And there was a big hush and all of that kind of thing. And he said, Harper, would you come out and and take a bow and so forth and so on? And so Dad came out from the wings and went to the microphone. And instead of playing or whatever he did, he, he took the microphone and he said, For 13 long years, I've toiled and labored for your happiness. And he went on, that was his bar mitzvah speech. (laughs) (laughs) And and concluding with, uh, it gives me great feeling to know that you folks have... Uh, 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 with your keenness and perspicacity have recognized uh, true true talent and, and monumental megalomania. I thank you. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> what a great one. And, 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 and then he said, and then he said, hey, this, this talking racket ain't bad. I, I should have stayed with it, you know. And, if, and the audience went crazy. That must have been a two or three minutes of, uh, and that's a long time. You oh, know? yeah. But oh, to he, be in that audience that night. Yeah, what a gift. Yeah. What a gift. Yep. Let's get some plugs in here, guys. Uh, Bill, the website, harpostplace.com. Yep. Great stuff there. Uh, uh, and it was uh, it was conceived and made possible by uh, a, a gentleman who is uh, I would have to say I could be almost his grandfather. Um, uh, his name is Matt Hickey, and 
he did work like this, and he was a huge Marx Brothers fan and a very close friend of Robert Bader's. And he did the design and put in all the stuff. I'm so proud of that uh, that particular website. It's, it's called harposplace.com. That's great. That's all it is. It's great. And it's... It, it's thank you. It's 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 a wonderful wonderful primer for uh, anybody that's interested in, in dad, his family life, his his uh, musicianship, his paintings are in there, and is uh, is and, uh, and there's a whole segment segment in there where I open up his prop trunk and I demonstrate a lot of the things right. that are there. So it's it's uh, well worth a good look. And we're going to okay. plug your book, which people can still get, Son of Harpo Speaks. It's on Amazon yep. uh, right. and uh, full of great stories, including your own personal stories and your own personal journey uh, and the, your journey to uh, discover your the, uh, the, uh, the circumstances of your adoption, which was very touching. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, that is, there are two separate stories that I tried to put together in some way. They were different chronologically. Uh, it didn't happen at the same time. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's a Hollywood story. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. The real Josh Frank.com and the book Gilbert. Ah, <laughs> oh, you woke him up. <laughs> Let me see if I can get it right this time. Go for it. Giraffes on horseback salad. Josh Frank. And Tim. actually, the website for the book. Ah, oh, the book is, has its own site. Has its own site, which is horsebacksaladbook.com. And um, it's got a lot of extras and cool stuff. And um, the most uh, interesting aspect, actually, I feel is that um, along with trying to really make give people as close to the full movie experience as they could possibly have. Um, we actually recorded the songs that are in the book. So it's a Marx Brothers movie. There has to be songs. It's ambitious. So you can actually, I, I have a friend who lives in Japan, and uh, I asked him if he'd compose these songs. And uh, I thought he was just going to do it on a little four track, like a 1980s four track with an audio cassette and send me a little piano. He put together a 30 person orchestra, 20 person chorus recorded all these songs and um, uh, they're actually available for free. If you buy the book um, on, on the, the, the um, book's website for the next month. Okay. Uh, an ambitious undertaking, this book and, and then some, and you guys are going to be doing an event this week. Uh, this will I, post. This will post well after that. Yeah, but we, we can't really. We'll plug it retrospectively. Well, we'll plug. <laughs> we'll plug it on social media. But we might have it up in time for the event you're doing with Bill in April. Yeah, in California. I, I got to tell you, I'm so excited that I get to be with Bill and Robert in Rancho Mirage, uh, where the you know where where, where Harpo lived and uh, where Bill now lives, and that I get to spend a day with them uh, presenting the book and. Stories about the Marx Brothers, and that's going to be April uh, uh, 26th. Okay. And uh, this masterpiece? Four of the three Marx Brothers. No. By the, <laughs> try it again. Try it Four again. of the three. I <laughs> fucked it up. I'm fucking, I, see, I knew it. Did you get I any sleep it. last night? No, see, I... The last time I was I here, thought, it took about three takes to get I the title. I thought when I had the horseback salad... You were on oh, a roll. I'm back. 
<laughs> we'll try it again. See, now I know what Groucho felt like toward the end. You know, you're no longer just doing old man Groucho. You're becoming old man Groucho. Poor of public speaking lessons uh, from my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, Bill. <laughs> They're phoning in the insults this now. fantastic <laughs> tome written by the great and obsessive Robert S. Bader, which you four, can get. Four of the three musketeers, the Marx Brothers on stage. Yes, get all three of these books. There's a website. There's a website. Hit me. MarxBrothers.net. It's all about the book. There's stuff in the website that didn't fit into the book because, as you can see, Frank Frank has to lift the book carefully. It's a little on the heavy side. I will tell you the research, the years of your <laughs> life that you put into that book, you have my admiration. And I Both just, of you do. I'll say this. I'm glad Bill mentioned Matt Hickey. He passed away a few years ago. He's a sorry. great, great guy. And my early days of writing that book, he really helped me in ways that I can never even explain because when I was afraid the book was going to be too long and like I've got too much about 1914, he would say, no, we need a whole book about 1914. <laughs> so Matt was the greatest you know, supporter of this project. More Marx Brothers books in the work? More, more, uh, I've got a couple uh, of works? things I'm cooking up. I hope to, uh, well, I'm working on the paperback of this book, which okay. is going to hopefully come out later this year. It's going to have some revisions in the stage chronology because the obsession did not stop with the publication of the book. I assure you there has been okay. a discovery here and there. More and projects with also, Mr. Cavett? Yeah, we've got a couple of cool things. I'm actually showing the, this week um, a rough cut of something we're working on about Groucho. Okay. So I will just say that um, the book for The Three Musketeers has gotten a really lovely reaction, a lot of which came from my first appearance on this show. I got a lot of mail. There's a website, marksbrothers.net, which has an email contact for me. I tend to answer the least insane letters. But I've gotten some really insane stuff from that email contact thing. But there are a lot of crazy Marx Brothers fans out there. There must be something that makes people obsess about the Marx Brothers. Well, the episode you did, people ate up with a spoon. So they're going to love this one too, I'm sure. And one last question, if you guys can all do this in about 30 seconds. Possible? We've talked about favorite movies. Pick one scene from a Marx Brothers picture. Bill, if you want to pick the same one from Go West, you can. Or you can pick a different one. But we'll, we'll do Bill last. So go ahead, Robert. Sweet Adeline, monkey business. Okay, great one. Josh. Harper doing the puppet scene in monkey business. I love it. Uh, I am going to pick either the scene in, uh, in Thelma Todd's uh, apartment in Horse Feathers where Groucho breaks the fourth wall or the speakeasy scene. Hey, you took two. Okay. <laughs> I can't decide. And I'm taking the mirror scene by second one. Oh, okay. Speakeasy, uh, well, the courtroom scene in Duck Soup. <laughs> oh, it's magnificent. Bill? The 16th century uh, theme of dad playing the harp in front of all the mirrors with the cello and uh, it was uh, in the big, big store. store. Yeah. In the big store. Yeah, it's a great That is an great amazing movie. piece of film. It is a great when moment. When Harpo looks over in the mirror and sees Harpo playing the cello, I lose it. <laughs> Gentlemen, this was a treat. We don't realize, but we didn't have those kind of, you know, uh, the the fancy kind of stuff that they can do now with computers and all. That was a really tricky scene, and it was brought off beautifully. I like everybody's choices. Yeah. Wonderful. Bill, this was great. We thank you for taking the time to do this, and we know you got a gig, and you're spread thin, and we appreciate this greatly. And I'm very grateful for having the gig. 
<laughs> and he doesn't mean this one. Thank you, Bill. You are well worth the wait. Thank Bill. you, Josh. Thank you, Robert. We should do this Thank every you. month. Thank you so much for Thank having you guys. Bill, so you take us out? Yep. What? Bill's going to take oh, us oh. out. So this has Hello. been Gilbert Gottfried. I must be going. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot stay. I came to say. I must I, be going. I'm glad I came, I, but just I, the same. Just the same. I must, I must be, be going. <laughs> I'll stay a week or two. Maybe I'll the summer on. through. But I am I telling am you. Telling you I am telling you. I must, must be going. going. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, boys. Oh, this was this was thank special. Thank you. Bye-bye. Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santa Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 